did they tell you? They told me that you had gone totally insane. And uh, that your methods were unsound. Are my methods unsound? I don't see any method at all. I expect someone like you. What did you expect? Assassin. I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy sent by grocery clerks to collect the bill. Again, and welcome to the first episode of season two of A Thousand and One by One, in which we take films out of the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss them, analyze them, and ultimately decide whether or not they should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And my name is Ian Woodington. And, you know, we decided that we were just going to start hard and just jump right into... Um, not only a movie celebrating its uh, 40th anniversary, but uh, I would say maybe maybe the most infamous film ever. I mean, well, certainly when it comes to the behind the scenes, which is ex- yeah, it's exactly you know, what I'm talking about. Things with this movie, and we'll we'll discuss the documentary as well. This is something of a two-parter. Exactly. So we are doing a little double feature, but they go hand in hand, and we are talking about Francis Ford Coppola's Vietnam epic, Apocalypse Now. And the corresponding documentary that goes with it that was uh, compiled of all the footage that uh, Eleanor Coppola put together. um, And that is Hearts of Darkness. So we're we're packing quite a wallop today. Now, we had mentioned uh, when we talk about recommends, not starting with those. Do you still, is that still where you want to go? Well, I actually, I, I didn't prepare a recommend for okay. Apocalypse because I knew how big Apocalypse okay. was going to be. And my recommend kind of comes in later to the conversation. So we're just going to jump right into it. Uh, Apocalypse Now, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, written initially by John Milius, and then he did a lot of rewrites on the set. But we can talk a lot about the whole genesis of, of where this movie started and where it was supposed to go. I'll just say one other thing is that it's based on (laughs) loosely based on the Joseph Conrad novel, heart of darkness, which uh, I'll bring up in a little bit because I, I I have to. Um, So, but we could talk a little bit about George Lucas and John Milius and how this whole thing started. The original intention. uh, I think the first draft of the script was about 1967. It's around the time that they were working on uh, one of Coppola's very early films, the rain people. Okay. I believe uh, Milius was an assistant on the set, or he, he was around anyway, because they had all gone to school together, Lucas and Milius and that whole, uh, De Palma was in that crowd as yes. well. Yeah, USC? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
uh, the University of Spoiled Children. <laughs> um, and there's an acronym for UCLA as well, but I can't remember that one uh, off the top of my head. Anyway, so Coppola had and Lucas had both pushed Milius into to writing this thing. Milius was a bit more uh, gung-ho when it came to politics than the rest of them and actually really did want to join up and go to Vietnam, but uh, failed the medical and was very disappointed about that. And so they put, well, why don't, instead of going to Nam, why don't you create your own Nam screen? You're a fantastic writer. Go ahead and take a crack at this. And uh, the original intention uh, was to take Lucas and Milius and a couple of unknown actors and actually go to Nam and shoot this thing while the war was actually happening and shoot it very low budget. I think the original budget was $2 million. Yeah. They were going to shoot it 16 millimeter cinema verite style and just kind of get what they could based around the bare bones of a script. Uh, and of course that ended up falling apart as, you know, Coppola went on to do the Godfather and Lucas of course did THX and, and American graffiti and actually Lucas pulling out of directing apocalypse actually really, hampered their friendship for quite a while. It took them several years to, to make up, you know, these two guys that were thick as thieves and were going to change the entire film industry. And in their own ways, they did. But Apocalypse was a, a breaking point in their friendship. Yeah, yeah. It was, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but there was a, a moment in the documentary where I think they're, they're taking a break in the shooting because a hurricane had wiped out a lot of the sets and they needed to be rebuilt. And it was it was kind of crazy seeing all of these celebrities and people on on the estate. Oh, the the party footage. Yes, yeah, and De Niro's yeah. there, and mm-hmm. so is Lucas and Milia's, and maybe even De Palma was there. Yeah, I, I, just uh, the 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 wear and tear on their relationship based on how this whole whole thing went down. Can I ask you a question? I was going to say for later, but yeah, it's go for a, it. just a fun thing to just bring up now. Who do you think had the bigger fall from grace? Francis Ford Coppola or George Lucas? Oh man, that's that's tough because they're both. There, there are people that would say that Lucas didn't fall from grace. I mean, in my in my opinion, he did. You know, based on what he did to his, own, it's I mean, it's his franchise. He can do what he wants with it, but you know, obviously lost a lot of respect in a lot of people's eyes. But he was still a revolutionary. I mean, Attack of the Clones was the first film to be entirely shot on digital. Yeah, and and Coppola's fall was of his own making i mean he gambled on apocalypse yeah we'll, we can talk about the budget in a minute yeah. he gambled on apocalypse and and won but then he turned around and tried to do it again on one from the heart his big musical epic that he put everything into he gambled on that again and lost and therefore every film that he made up until i want to say jack yeah he was a director for hire on he didn't really choose he chose his own projects but he was he was not you know developing them in the same ways that he was with conversation or apocalypse now he really was a director for hire and and all of his salary from most of those films went to paying off the debts from one from the heart yeah yeah and i only bring that up not just because of the feud but also i mean you look at you look at coppola basically after this movie and it's there's nothing on there to run back to and watch. I mean, as in in my opinion, and well, I know a lot of people have a, a special place in their heart for the outsiders, and I think that's more nostalgia driven based on what. And and there's a big fan base around his Dracula adaptation. Oof. Which, uh, well, 
That, I'm not it's one a, of them. It's a beautiful movie. Sure, yeah. It, it won a bunch of Oscars for production design. And exactly, and, like and that, I, yeah. I love the style of going back to the 1920s and the 1910s and trying to shoot certain aspects of it as if it was a silent film and going back to the basics of special effects and doing everything in camera and double exposures and things like that. All of that I really appreciate. It's just why Keanu and why Winona, they're yeah. both just yeah. unbearably bad in it. Well, and, and so... Yeah, I just I I kept thinking about it, especially mostly while watching Hearts of Darkness, because, you know, Lucas, I think Lucas gets more credit for a lot of more credit than he deserves. Now, if we're talking about him being a pioneer in terms of the sound quality and the visualization and everything on 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 the ranch and everything he does and intellectual property and and toy manufacturing. Yes, very true. But I mean, he's a pioneer in a lot of things. I do not. I don't know how to say. It. I do not think he's a pioneer filmmaker. I think he. Now I haven't seen American Graffiti. I'm gonna. So I'm not gonna. I'm not including this. You, I think you'll amend that opinion, but not to the point of of sure being a hundred percent behind it. It but, might get you to fifty percent. It probably I, won't get you all the way. I realize that Star Wars was revolutionary. I, I'm, I'm not gonna say anything that I'm not gonna say that it wasn't. But when I think of what he what he did after the first Star Wars, he gets a lot of credit for the world, and I'm, I'm, and I think that's rightly justified, but can you name another film after Star Wars that he did that you, you're you like, yeah, give me some more George Lucas? Well, he didn't really direct was the other problem. And it that's, was just producing, and so, and that's, mostly. That's, that's, it's, this, it's this curious conundrum, I was thinking, because then again, you know, Coppola has made three of my top 100 films probably of all time, and... And yet, you look at the back half of his career, and it's it's a train wreck. It's it's pretty bad. So and and I, I can't really comment too much on it. I, I saw Youth Without Youth. I saw, I saw the three newest ones, the ones that he had made completely independently, the Youth Without Youth, uh, Tetro, and Twixt. And Twixt is just garbage. That, that is hot garbage. I, I looked that one up on IMDb. And the, the the first image was just like what what in the hell is this? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's L. Fanning and uh, Val Kilmer. Uh, you got yeah, me. Yeah, it's it's about a, a washed up writer and dealing with like fairy tales being real and 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 certain things. I honestly can't remember much of it. It was garbage. But the other two films, Tetro and and Youth Without Youth, are both fantastic, and I think they're really misunderstood films because when you go into a Francis Coppola film, you expect you have expectations that are set, I think, unreasonably high. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and, and rightfully they definitely, so. I, I definitely I, don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying that you're wrong yeah. or anybody would be wrong not to, but you, those, it, it's a different level of filmmaking at the age that he is at when he made Youth Without Youth and, and Tetro. They're smaller, much more personal films. I think a lot of people, if they haven't seen them, are going to be kind of, they're not going to know what to think of them, not at first anyway. I mean, they. I think every film that Coppola has made demands repeat viewing, sure. with the exception of Jack. You know, I have such a soft spot for Jack. Yeah, I like, know you do. That's yeah. why I'm going to keep digging at it. No, and I, I mean, not in any other way than just I saw it at the right age, you know, I totally got it. But in, in multiple ways, that movie hasn't aged well. Bill Cosby aside, that movie hasn't aged very well. Um do you want to talk about this cast a little bit? Yeah, no, we we blew straight past all our, our no, no, usual we didn't, stats. We didn't blow past it. Yeah. We just, that was just a part of the cover. I brought right. up the George Lucas thing. Okay. We're good. We're good. Um, 
So uh, uh, Martin Sheen plays uh, Captain uh, Benjamin Willard. Originally Harvey Keitel. I was going to say that we, I mean, you have to bring that up. I, it's rough because I do love me some Harvey Keitel. But I actually really like what Martin Sheen did I can in this see, movie. I can see where Keitel would be wrong for this. And it, he was definitely nowhere near the top of the list for first choice. Yeah. As, as far as... I just... And there's... And there's the, the sad thing is that there seems to be no footage of it because they shot for a week with him. Yeah. Or was it almost two weeks? No, I thought it was three. Oh, was it more? Okay. Yeah, I thought they I thought they, they got a, a pretty far into the process. Right. It was like, this is just not working. Yeah, I would love to see some of that footage, because we have footage from Back to the Future yeah. with uh, Eric Stoltz, Eric Stoltz yeah. as Marty McFly, and it's nice to to see why that went so wrong, but we, we've never seen any evidence that Kaita... I don't, I don't disbelieve anybody when they say he was wrong for the role, but I would like sure. to see some of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just, yeah, for the, for the curiosity, for the same reason we want to watch the other two versions of Victoria that are out, yeah, maybe exactly. out there. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't even know how to talk about. So, uh, Marlon Brando plays Kurtz in this. Is it too early to talk about Marlon Brando or should we wait? No, let's, let's get through the stats. Okay. And great. Then, great. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, uh, Robert Duvall plays Kilgore. Uh, Frederick Forrest plays Chef. Uh, Sam Bottoms plays uh, Lance Johnson, the surfer. Uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne plays Clean. At the age of 14. Yep. Thanks to uh, some friends on the set, he had a bit of a heroin addiction. Uh, one friend in particular, that would be Mr. Dennis Hopper. Who's also in this and is in this movie just as photojournalist. Um, Albert Hall plays Chief Phillips. Well, I'm not, is that the guy at the beginning? No, Chief is the he's the guy. Oh, that, Chief! Oh my God, the yeah. boat captain. Sorry, yeah, yeah. sorry, sorry. I'm oh sorry. Harrison Ford was next on my on my list, so I got I jumped ahead. So yeah, Harrison Ford is in this briefly as Colonel Lucas. Uh, G. D. Sprawlden plays General Corman. The only other thing people might know him from is he's the senator in Godfather Two. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah he there is. You go. Yep. And then the the only other one I have listed just because is poor Scott Glenn. Who, uh, depending on which version of this movie you watch, not even really in it, uh, as uh, Lieutenant Richard Colby. And the only other cast member I have, just to give him a shout out, is uh, Jerry Ziesmer, who plays Jerry, the civilian. He was actually the second unit photography and an, and an AD on the film. And they, I don't know if they, I, I tried to look to see if they had somebody else cast for that part that they couldn't get. And this was, this was Terminate. With extreme prejudice. Yeah, that's him. He okay, gets yeah, pretty. Yeah. He gets like one of the most iconic lines in the film. But he's had a great career as uh, an assistant director as well. He was on uh, De Palma's Scarface. Oh, okay, and yeah, he's yeah. Uh, Cameron Crowe's uh, regular assistant director All as well. Right. Cool, being cool. In, uh, Jerry Maguire and and that sort of yeah, era yeah. of of Cameron Crowe films. Awesome, awesome. Um, so uh, Francis Ford Coppola is in the book three other times. For movies that probably won't surprise you at all. Uh, the Godfather, Godfather Part 2, and The Conversation. So, Shit, man, where's Rumblefish? I don't know. Uh, that, <laughs> that, that is a criterion for I some know. reason. I know. <laughs> um, so now we're, we're going to get into a little interesting part here where we talk about uh, stats. And I, I got a bunch. You might have others I, I, have, I didn't get. Um, but I, I usually I lead with the Oscars, but I'm not going to this time because I have to lead with, uh, with the can and that it won the Palm d'Or. Although it did tie with uh, the tin drum, and it also won. It wasn't even complete. Yes, when he showed it at Cannes, it was a, a version that ran about 140 minutes, so oh, it was yeah. still about 10 minutes shorter than theatrical. Yeah, and I find uh, that I don't know how I feel about that. Well, he the reason he did it is to shut the press up. 
Yeah, and they, sure. they talk about that a little bit in Eleanor's uh, documentary. I I love the first two Godfather movies so much, but hearing Francis Ford Coppola say, "My movie is not about Vietnam. My movie is Vietnam." I wanted to punch him in the face so hard. So hard. I, I don't think he's wrong. But the thing is, yeah, when you take that sentence out of context and don't follow it up with what he says afterwards, which is where, you know, we went as a big Hollywood production. We went representing America. We had, you know, too much time and too much money and things just got out of control. I don't think it's an unfair comparison. Yeah, I, I think I, he's I think he's right on. Uh, OK, OK. I, I, I see I see how you're interpret I'm interpreting it differently, I think. I think he's trying to say that he made the end all be all fit like like people who were in Vietnam in, in the war are gonna be like, Yeah, man, this was it. And I don't I don't know. Well that's he you don't think he did make the definitive Vietnam I, movie? I don't, no. It's no. platoon for you, isn't it? I, I would say of all of them, probably, yeah. Yeah. Um but well, I'm sure we'll get into that later. Because uh, we're just we're just scratching the surface of this. The yeah, fucking exactly. movie. Um, <laughs> so uh, at the Academy Awards, uh, it was nominated for a bunch of things. Uh, a lot of which it lost to Kramer versus Kramer, which uh, I watched for the first time last night. And this is going to be a part of a, of a of a longer conversation that I bring up later because it, it it's it's not about. Apocalypse Now specifically, so I'm not going to bring it up now. Um, but uh, Apocalypse Now lost picture and director and adapted screenplay to Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, we mentioned on our Being There episode that uh, Robert Duvall lost to Melvin Douglas for being there. Well, the fact that he even got nominated is incredible because, again, depending on which version you see, he's only in the theatrical, I think, for 11 minutes. Yeah, not, he's not, not that long. And even in the Redux version, he's not in it much more than that. Not really, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, it lost um, production design to All That Jazz, which we mentioned All That Jazz when we were talking about Alien. Um, it, it, and it lost editing to All That Jazz as well. Uh, it did pick up two wins. Uh, it won sound and it won cinematography. And uh, Vittero, what, oh, what is his name? I'm an, uh, Vittorio Stororo. Thank you. He was almost my unsung hero. We'll get there when in due time as well. Uh, Golden Globes, it lost Best Picture to Kramer versus Kramer, although it did win Director, Supporting Actor, and Score. At the BAFTAs, it was nominated for a shitload. It won Director and Supporting Actor, lost Film, Actor, Film, Music, Cinematography, Editing, Production, Design, and Sound. I don't know if you wanted to say who won any of those. Sure, yeah. Uh, it lost Cinematography and Editing to Deer Hunter, Film to Manhattan, which is just wow. fucking weird. Yeah. Uh, production design and sound to Alien, which that's tough. That's yeah. a real tough break. Yeah. Uh, music to Days of Heaven, which I'm I'm kind of fine with. I've talked to you before about how much I love you Days do. of Heaven. I've not seen it. So it's, it's fantastic. I, I got nothing. Yeah. And then uh, Lost Actor to uh, Jack Lemmon oh, okay. for uh, China Sh- Syndrome. All right. Which I I haven't seen, but I mean, if you're going to lose to anybody, I mean, Sh- yeah. Jack Lemmon is as, is as good as anybody else. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, it currently sits at number 30 on the AFI's top 100. Uh, on the previous list, it was 28, so pretty much right where it was before. Uh, he um, Francis Ford Coppola picked up a DGA nom. Uh, it was on the National Board of National Board of Review's top 10. Hey, Ian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? In the year 2000. Yes, it was. So we will always have this film. It also picked up uh, a Writer's Guild uh, nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. I looked up this movie on August 21st, so it's been some time. 54 on IMDb's top 250. It has slipped since then. It is number 55 as of the 3rd of September. Snap 
snap snap okay um it also i so i didn't i didn't pull a review for this movie um neither did i i figured we were going to have enough to say without I did, crowding it, the plate in in the realm of the spirit of pulling a review um so ebert has his book the great movies book but ebert has a top 10 of all time it's unranked but he does have a 10 of all time and i want to read you his 10 in alphabetical order uh aguire wrath of god uh, Aguirre. Aguirre, thank you. Uh, Apocalypse Now, Citizen Kane, La Dolce Vita, The General, Raging Bull, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Tokyo Story, Tree of Life, and Vertigo. Tree of Life is in the Malick movie, Tree of Life. Uh, indeed. Okay. Yeah. Respect. That's a list right there of, of, of movies. I, I've you, seen almost all of them. You're you're not impressed with that list in any way, shape, or form, judging by your face. Well, no, no, it's not that I'm not impressed. It it it, it seems like what somebody who is a film critic maybe has to do. Like like these. No, there's a couple in there that that make that gives me pause on a sentence. Like like I understand La Dolce Vita, saying it because of something like that, or saying it because of um, what what was it? Uh, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Aguirre being on there. And uh, Raging Bull. Sorry, I mean, I, I know Raging Bull is universally loved by most film critics anyway, but that's that's something that I'm surprised to hear in his top ten. Sure. Anyways, that, that all I wanted to say there was just that that, that was on his his ten of all time. Uh, and it's, it's on my top ten of all time. Well, you two have something in common. I think I, I texted you that the other night is that this is the one film, because for me... I don't want to assume that my favorite films of all time are the greatest of all time. That's just arrogant. So I separate those lists. And this is one of maybe two that makes it on both my favorite and the greatest films of all time. See, I don't know that I could actually separate the two. If I'm, if I'm being honest. I, 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 well, that's I, just arrogant, I man. Think, no, but I, I think <laughs> that... Your, I, whatever. <laughs> fine. Fine. That's the American in me, I guess. I'm just guess. an arrogant prick. Show some um, humility, sir. I, I try. I try. Um, We're going to have to send you up to the French, French plantation to get a history lesson. Fuck that. <laughs> I am going nowhere near that goddamn French plantation. I loved hearing Martin Sheen talk a little bit about, like, like how that stops the movie. And I, didn't he say, like, basically he was kind of glad it didn't make it in or I don't know, something like that. Anyways, Rotten Tomatoes has 97, critical 94, audience. Well, it actually has Rotten Tomato scores for all three versions. Oh. Would you like to hear the other two? I, why not? So Redux has a 93 and a 91 audience. That's off. And the final has a 100% critical. No audience as of yet. Okay. Um, so I, I will have no comment on the, the final cut. Yeah, I will, I'll do a, a, a quick yeah, breakdown yeah. at Although some point. Although the Redux the should be somewhere maybe near 30. Wow, you feel really 20, strongly about that. 22. Yeah. No, the Redux. I ooh, no, man. The Redux. I, I I think Apocalypse Now is too long in general. I think it is. You think even the two and a half hour cut is too long? I do. Yeah, yeah. Most there there are so many things I feel like are are there for no reason, and then trying to hear the justification for it in Hearts of Darkness, i.e., the Playboy bunnies being the sirens. Okay, cool. So so what story are we trying to tell? Are we talking about Heart of Darkness? Or are we talking about the the sirens and and the odyssey because because now you're just crossing uh old texts and and i don't know what you're actually trying to say um so i think i think the playboy bunny was a fucking stupid thing in the movie it does don't worry we'll we'll do we'll do a breakdown and i will try and find you will you will not agree with them but i will try and find justifications for the scenes in redux and and 
whether they should be in there or not versus the final cut. And would you like to talk about the different versions just briefly and, and why there are three different versions now? I, well, Even I, before we break down the differences I would, between I would, them. I would love to, my friend. So for anybody who's not, you know, versed in Apocalypse Now, the original cut runs just shy of two and a half hours. That was the one that was released in 1979. Uh, when they went back to do the DVD... Um, around 2000, he decided, Coppola, this is, decided that he felt like he had kind of cut the balls off of of Apocalypse Now and just did, the theatrical was really there just to appease, you know, the uh, the studios, you know, to get it down to a manageable running time because if you go past two and a half hours, you lose a screening a day. So you've got to be, you've got to wear, really wear two hats as a filmmaker, you know, you've got to, you know, still value your art and be an artist and make something that... Yes, and I get that American Zoetrope was, you know, that basically he was behind it too. Exactly. I know that he, he was wearing multiple hats. Right. On, yeah. So the, the Redux is there to put almost everything back in and, and give it the full weird perspective because this is, this is a psychedelic film of sorts. Oh, very much so. So that's so you have, you know, short version and then you have very long version. Redux runs about three hours and 20 minutes. Now, with the 40th anniversary, when they went back to do the 4K Blu-ray, they decided to go at it from the ground up. They, this, this is the first time it's ever been on home video where they have actually restored the original film elements and done a proper 4K, 4K scan. And let me tell you, it is the most beautiful looking film I have ever seen in 4K. It's absolutely stunning. Uh, anybody who hasn't picked up that disc that is thinking about it, you pick it up. It is a must-own. Uh, so this new version is pretty much three hours on the nose and uh, tries to create the best of both worlds. A little bit of the brevity that was there in the theatrical with some of the weirdness, not quite all of it, that was in Redux. So you have what Coppola believes is now the definitive version and a happy middle ground between the two. Sure. Sure. And uh, for anybody who uh, is is not on the fence in terms of wanting to buy the final cut, um, you just you could think about taking a three hour nap instead. Um, well, here's it comes with all three versions. So you get to pick the one you like best. Oh, that. OK, cool. It's it's a huge six disc box. I, yeah. OK. I see how this episode's going. It's a huge six-disc box set. You've got uh, all three cuts in 4K, all three cuts on Blu-ray, and then two discs that are just loaded with extras, new and old, sure. archival, plus Eleanor's uh, documentary. Yeah. Um, so do we want to treat these as like, we'll do Apocalypse Now and then kind of like f- fill in Hearts of Darkness stuff as it comes up? Yeah, oh. absolutely. Okay, cool. Um, so do we, should, we, should we do some of the stats on Heart of Darkness now? Yes. Okay, cool. Good idea. So um, Heart of Darkness um, is all the footage that was basically put together um, by Eleanor Coppola, although um, George Hickenlooper, which is just, and, and Fox Bar, Fax Bar, what a, what a couple of really fun names to say. Would you like to know what they're both famous for outside of this documentary? I, sh- I actually looked this up and I, I've spaced it in the moment. Please tell so me. So Fax Barr, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, was uh, the head writer, or one of the head writers on In Living Color. Oh. And Hinklin Looper uh, is famous for directing the short that inspired Sling Blade, the, some folks call it a Sling Blade. Yeah, okay. Like the 28, 30 minute short, whatever that was with Billy Bob Thornton. Okay. Um, uh, what I didn't know initially until, uh, until doing the research was that this was actually uh, Showtime 
um, documentary, picked up two primetime Emmys, and then went on to, it got a DJ nom for Best Documentary. It won the National Board of Review's Best Documentary that year, the National Society Film Critics nomination. It uh, also nominated for the New York Film Critics Circle nomination. Um, there was really a lot to list. I didn't write down every single city in which it was nominated or won for, but it, it, it won a lot of things when it came out. Well, it it served to set the record straight because there was a lot of what it, the great thing that it goes into is some of those newspaper newspaper clippings of the apocalypse when yeah. or that great cartoon of Coppola sat next to the little tree saplings and then calling action and then by the time he calls cut the trees are fully grown like you I, know, I very that, much enjoyed I, that. I like that one a lot too <laughs> um and then it's it's not on the IMDb 250 and uh, it has a perfect 100% critical on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94 audience and is much more digestible than Apocalypse Now itself because it's only about 90 minutes. That's true. It's true. Although, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I don't like Apocalypse Now because I do. Um, but yeah, it, it's, 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 it's a nice companion piece. To, to, you know, I watched one one night and then Heart of Darkness the next. And it was, it was nice. It was kind of a uh, very informative, I must say. Yeah. So do you want to? I feel like you. Are, I feel like you are more gung ho about this. I feel like I, I feel like you need to lead us through Apocalypse Now. All right. So a brief summary of the plot of Apocalypse Now for anybody who isn't familiar. Sure. Um, yeah. You have Captain Willard, played by Martin Sheen. He is wasting away when we first meet him at a uh, random hotel room in Saigon, mm-hmm. waiting for a mission. I mean, it's all he can think about getting back out into the jungle as oh, he says one of his one of my favorite lines in this movie is when he says I, I barely said a word to my wife until i said yes to a divorce that's great there's some there are some very well-written lines well in yeah movie. no we didn't even mention the the narration written after the fact by uh, michael Hur, uh known for the writer who he would later go on to write full metal jacket yeah. for uh, stanley kubrick and actually the narration the great thing about it or the maybe not the great thing about it the funny thing about it it's not even martin sheen it's his brother joe estevez yeah yeah uh, because they sound just so alike. And in fact, if you're listening to commercials or like, I think he did, uh, Joe did MasterCard commercials for a while and everybody just assumed it was Martin Sheen. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, he, that's what Joe Estevez has made his, his living off of, is doing voiceovers for a lot of commercials and things like that. And banking on his banking on his brother's uh, success. I think they're riding those coattails very nicely. And he is in quite a bit of Apocalypse. A lot of those yeah. establishing shots while Martin Sheen had his heart attack, which we can go into that. Uh, anyway, to try and get through the plot summary yeah, here, sorry, he's wasting. Yeah, he's wasting away in the the hotel room. He has a great line about every moment I sit here, I get weaker, and every moment Charlie sits out in the bush, he gets stronger. Anyway, two guys come to him to bring him back to to base, where the general and Colonel Lucas, which is a nice little shout out to George Lucas, played by Harrison Ford. Um, they have a very highly sensitive mission. He must travel upriver in a PBR, and uh, Terminate with extreme prejudice, Colonel Walter E. Kurtz's command, who is operating completely on his own. They believe that he has gone insane. And along the way, he has various journey, various meetings, you know, going to the, they stop at the USO show. And there's that terrible nightmare sequence uh, on the bridge that they just keep rebuilding and keeps getting destroyed every night. And of course, if you're watching the Redux version, eventually you'll come to the French plantation which is a scene that is very hotly debated. Anyway, he reaches Kurtz's compound and meets the Dennis Hopper character, a photojournalist who, it, this is just Dennis Hopper, as far as I can tell, playing himself, which is, is great. I think Dennis Hopper is fantastic in this. You know, I got I to gotta say, uh, 
Melissa doesn't really speak in the jargon of our podcast very often, but as soon as like the second sec, his second scene, she leaned to me and she goes, he's my unsung hero of this movie. Oh, she, I love that. She loved him to pieces. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. I, that's so good. I wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well done, Melissa. That's awesome. <laughs> By the way, the wound of West Side Story, it's still fresh. It's still there. Oh, okay. I just got to throw it out there. Okay. Thanks yeah. for that. It came up this morning. Oh, so good. Just, <laughs> oh boy. Never going to live that one down. And so, yeah. And then, and then, uh, Willard uh, completes his assignment and we are left with a very ambiguous ending. Yes, we are indeed. So y- you mentioned the heart attack and this will be all over the place because this movie actually is very op- episodic. There's a lots of different, you know, there's lots of different set pieces, lots of different moments. So we'll, we'll get to everything, but kind of going back to the, uh, the, the documentary, hearing i think i lost almost all respect for francis ford coppola when he said the line until i but basically something like if like marty's not dead until i say like if he was to die from the heart attack you know like nobody says he's dead until i say he's dead it was something to that extent that sounds really fucked up and dictatorial and he talks about a director being the last dictatorial post but yes he did yep he has clarified that statement what he was trying to do was control the rumor mill. He was yes. trying to control the what would happen if that got back to the insurance people. They would shut the film down. Okay, rightfully so. Yes. So, so what what I'm hearing is, but a Marty man... was being well taken care of. Is the other thing? It was people were extrapolating and making it sound. Yes, a heart attack is awful. But he, there's an excellent new interview with him. Uh, it's actually being moderated by uh, Steven Soderbergh. They've just showed the final cut at uh, Tribeca, and there's a great little 45-minute discussion with him. And he does go on to explain that. Like he's like, "Look, I had to, I had to have the best interest of not only Marty involved, but of the film as well, because he was in it for everything." And so Marty got flown back for five weeks, and he had said that, "Look, if if Marty's wife had said no, he can't come back." He would have 100% respected that decision. That's that's their call and not his. And so I think there's a lot in Heart of Darkness that we see out of context. I, and I think Coppola is judged... History has judged him a lot more harshly than I think he deserved. Sure. And see, hearing that statement out of context, yeah, it's it's horrifying. Is that really how things were working on that set? I don't I don't believe so. Well... Okay, but I, I will say that hindsight is twenty twenty, and if we all get to go back and rewrite our own history, we're going to make ourselves sound a fuckload better than we than we were initially. I, I'm not. I'm I'm sure that Coppola feels terrible about the way that that came out, but and I'm pretty sure in the, in the in the documentary, it's not film footage; it's just audio recording. Right, because Eleanor would was secretly taping yes. a lot of his conversations, which even leads me to believe more that he he really truly meant everything he said. And I get that he can go back and and give more explanation and details as to why he said what he said. But the fact remains that he he very much like I think he would have mourned the loss of his film more than the loss of Martin Sheen had Martin Sheen died from that heart attack. I, I think that's... No, I can't agree. I can't get on board with that. I, you're telling me after putting all of his money on the line, his, his, his house and his, his acres and everything else and the years into filming this, 
I, I, ah, man, that's, I, I don't. I yeah, don't. But human life is, is human life. I, I absolutely get that. But the, the way he talks about it now, I, I can't believe that he was as evil if you want to use that word I, I don't think he's i don't think he was evil. no i'm not saying that i just you think are. he had just, his i think he had his blinders on right. and i think he was so now see now i'm making excuses for him but I, I get that this was all probably getting to him and that you know they were in a totally different place they were they were literally losing helicopters as they needed to be go used to fight an actual battle nearby i i get that there were a lot of things out of his control and that it was probably stressful as all hell but you know, I, I don't, it, it seems unfair to just allow him to go back and rewrite his own history and make himself sound better when, you know, everything's right there. And I'm not saying he hasn't changed. I mean, obviously decades have gone by and again, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm at least trying to lean into what you were saying. And yeah, I, I am sure he feels bad about what he did and what he said but he still didn't said those things. <laughs> that's that's pretty much where I'm right. I'm coming to. But the flip side of that argument is is Martin Sheen didn't have to come back to that set. I'm sure that that would have gotten back to him what Francis said because he didn't just say it in private. There are other people on that recording. I mean, yes. he said it in front of other people. Yeah, I mean, that would have gotten back to Sheen, and he didn't have to come back. But he, but he did because he's a professional. Well, sure, but but and so is Coppola. I mean, we all say things in the heat of the moment which are just fucking awful. I, but I, I, I choose I, to believe that, that Coppola would have had the best intentions. If, if the decision was made, Marty's not coming back, you've got what you've got, then that's it. Yeah, it would have been heart, heartbreaking, devastating. But I don't think he values his film over human life. I think that's ridiculous. I, I'm not going to say that he would think that way now. I think on set, Making that movie, not just in the moment in which we heard that recording, but during the the entire filming of it, I I think that might have been his mindset, to some extent. Uh, the the only person that knows is is him and the people that were there. Exactly, and and he's had a chance to totally rewrite that own history of his. So, <laughs> I I don't know I don't know why you're calling it rewriting history though. It, it's a chance to go back and to add context. Add context, but to, to he's he's a. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I. 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 I think that there are directors out there who who have done a lot to get performances out of actors, and they've been very dictatorial. Absolutely. Um. And to what extent we want to vilify them is up to every everybody out there. You know, a lot of people hate Kubrick. A lot of people hate Hitchcock for the way they treated actors on set, and both of them were very dictatorial. I mean, probably to a different extent. You know. Fincher is famous for doing, you know, 70, 80 takes of a shot. Oh, shit, that opening scene in, in Social, Social Network, Network, that's, I think, the take that's in the movie is take 100. So, so I, and I get that that's, those are different versions of demanding and, and, and that's messed up in different ways. I just, you know, and, and maybe I just need to see another a documentary about a film where we're hearing a lot of the shit that gets set behind closed doors. And there, there's probably a lot I don't know, you know. The only other thing I've seen not even close to the same, but David O. Russell's freak out on um, uh, Lily Tomlin on the set of I Heart Huckabees where he's fucking calling her a cunt and stuff like like in front of people. And sure, he can go back and say that was wrong. I shouldn't have said it. I was I was caught up. I was in the heat of the moment. But it doesn't change the fact 
that he said and did this thing. And I'm realizing right now that this is not even about the fucking movie anymore. So, well, no, it's still it still is because we're talking about the documentary and we're talking about Coppola's potential attitude. But are you are you thinking by him saying that? Are you thinking that it was an unsafe set that he would have put people in harm's way because he had his children on set i don't think he would which i have problems with in and of my i mean well sheen had his children there as well i I have problems with that too emilio and and charlie both have small roles in the film as does uh giancarlo and uh and roman coppola i mean they're all in it that cool cool you know i and i i i would not have i mean if if i'm making a film over in the philippines and i'm told hey, you know what, by the way, we might have to lose the helicopters every once in a while so they can go and actually fight a real battle not too far from where we are. I'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah, family, you're not coming over here. And and why? Because I value your safety. Again, it, there's, a, there's a slew of not totally rational and smart decision-making happening behind the camera of this film. Now, in front of the camera, like what we get in this movie is really good. Like... And, and I'll bring it up later, but like the fact that uh, Francis Ford Coppola lost Best Director to uh, was it Robert Benson for yeah for, for Kramer is fucking ridiculous. And I'll get into it later. I mean, I'll talk a little bit more about it later. But that is that is horse shit. It's not even close. I mean, there was some great great camera work going in in, in this movie. So I mean, I, I I mean the cinematography is is bar none. It's I think it is. The one of the five most beautiful films ever shot. It's great, and I, which is a word adjective to use when you talk about a Vietnam War film, especially one with the strange psychedelic tendencies and the and the just sheer weirdness. Yeah, and and oh well, I, I'm not going to call any of the violence over the top in it, but it certainly doesn't hold back. When, it, when it's interesting to use the word beautiful, I think. No, in I, connection I, with this film, I get you though. I mean, it, the way it's shot, it is. It's it's. It's it's majestic. It's and it's it's very it's panoramic. It's I don't I, think there's a single I don't think there's a single image in this film you couldn't blow up and put in a frame and put on your wall. Sure. Yeah. No. And it, yeah. I I'm not going to disagree with you on that. It's it's a gorgeous film. Um. And then you know thinking about that this this one cinematography being being one of the few that it did win is right on the money. Right on. Well, the and the other one, it, if it's going to win anything the else, sound. the sound. The I mean, they were inventing the way that we hear films. I love with the, this one the transition, or I'm not even sure if you call it a transition, but the edit of of uh, Mart of Willard watching the the ceiling fan and hearing the helicopter fan. I fucking dug that so much. This is this is one of those moments where if I had the DeLorean and somebody said you can go back in time and see a few films, you know, in their day. This would definitely be one of them. I want to be there in that room where people heard that for the first time because yeah. it, it changed. What Walter Murch did on this on this film, he's my unsung hero. Yeah, what he's what he did, the, what all the sound people did on this film. I mean, it resonated down all the way to now. This they shaped the way that we hear film. Yeah, yeah. It's and I, you know I kept thinking too that this this movie has so many um, crossfade edits in it. Um, and I, a couple of great hard cuts too. Yeah, but I the the opening of this movie is is really good. I mean, it's 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 really good. And and normally I don't like. I think crossfades can be used too much, and and I don't know that I don't always like them. But but the the lingering, it, it, they just they held for so long, and you know seeing Sheen's face 
over the trees, over like other, like there'd be three or like three things at the same time that you're kind of seeing and you, you get what's going on. You get that there's a lot happening in his mind and you know, that he's, he's not just remembering things, but we're probably getting the idea that this is happening at that exact moment too. And it's, it's, it's the, the, the way he's almost having premonitions of where he's going. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, I want to throw this in now. So this, I, I believe it or not, and I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of this movie. I put a lot of extra time into this movie. Have you read Heart of Darkness? I have a copy sitting on my shelf that I bought 20 years ago that I still have not read. So I will not claim to have read it. However, I did listen to it. Um, Kenneth Branagh Ooh, does fancy a, pants. a three and a half hour um, audiobook recording of it. And I was like, you know what? I'll, I will listen to it, and I will I will see what I can glean from it. Um, and only in the slightest of ways is this movie anything even fucking close to uh, the book. And I, I looked a well, little... Well, it's basically, he's going up a river to meet Kurtz, and I don't even think his mission in the book is to kill nope. Kurtz. I think it's to bring him back, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it, it like it's like an ivory trade, and he's off, and he's kind of running his own thing now. And um, it, it's it's interesting because the the book is essentially the Willard character telling this story to a bunch of guys on a boat. It's like, it's a recollection of something that has happened uh, versus like the narration of, of this one. Um, the one thing that's, that I would say is, is glaringly different is, and even though there's Sheen ends up kind of having a certain amount of respect for him, I wouldn't say that there's a, an admiration in, in the book. Um, the, the, I forget what Marlo, I think is the character's name is like fascinated and like, I mean, in a very loving way, admiring this person, and um, it's uh, it's got some of the you know the the horror. The horror is is in the book, and there's some other things too. But um, it's it's a slog. I I, I found it to be uh, not very entertaining. Well, the the other thing is the book is old, 120 years old now at this point, and apparently Joseph Conrad has not. Uh, I, I would say Joseph Conrad as a person hasn't aged well. Um, a lot of the titles of his book actually have the N word in the title, so I'm like, oh, cool, that's that's good. You, uh, yeah, suffering you probably from, weren't very right. The yeah. the Rudler, Rudyard Kipling thing with a lot of colonialism and feel, yeah, 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 those kinds very of, much so. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, I just wanted to say that I I did I did listen to uh, essentially I guess the source material and uh, I can kind of see where parts of it were, but uh, not not really. Although there is like a photojournalist type guy. It's a Russian guy. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. I see where they got this guy from. Yeah. And even though it seemed like Hopper was like a last minute um, casting, it, it it makes sense in the world of Heart of Darkness. Is So the photojournalist, the Russian character in the in the novella, is he kind of spaced out a little bit yes, as well? Yes, yes. Okay. And like, and just talks so admiring of, of, of Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you had seen him, he reads poetry. If you had seen him, and yeah, I mean, they probably took almost. I mean, oh, so a lot of Hopper's dialogue is from. It, it seems like it. Yeah, okay. yeah. I would say so. What are they going to say about him, man? Was he, he was a wise man. He was a kind man. I'm not going to help you, man. No, you're going to help him, man. What's the whole and the whole? You can't land on fractions. What is <laughs> oh, that is my oh <laughs> my absolute favorite Dennis Hoffman moment. That's Dianetics, man. That's simple. One through nine. No fractions. You either love a person or you hate him. What are you going to do? You're going to you're going to go out into space on fractions. What are you going to land on? One quarter, three eighths? I don't think so. <laughs> Fucking movie. This is how the world ends, man. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. And with a whimper, I'm fucking out of here. 
And we never, he has no resolution at all, right? He, or in so, the, re- yeah, wait, that's in the work print, in this, this oh, yes. mythical work print that yeah. people talk about, which somebody gave me a copy of it once, and it is in the condition that it has deteriorated to, it is unwatchable. Uh-huh. Um, you can find the clip on YouTube, though, of the photojournalist's fate, Colby, the Scott Glenn character who was sent up the river first to kill Kurtz and yes. ends up becoming a part of the compound. Mm-hmm. He actually kills the photojournalist for the reason that he talks about when he first meets Willard is, oh, I took his picture, man. And he grabbed me and he threw me in a corner. And he said, if you take my picture again, I'll kill you. And he meant it. Yeah. So that he does that. Colby does kill him for that reason. And okay. it was, uh, from what I can see, it was uh, supposed to be quite graphic. Like he shoots him with a shotgun, it blows his arm off and sends him flying you know, um, off yeah. his feet. Yeah. Um, what's great about, and I'm going to keep coming back to the new 4K release, mm-hmm. is there is some B-roll footage on there, about 20 minutes or so. Uh, B-roll footage has never been seen before, and it's the first time that you've ever seen behind-the-scenes footage of them actually shooting the photojournalist's death. Okay. And the the tests with the fake arm being blown off and things like that. So that was that was fascinating. That was worth its weight right there or sure. worth the price of it just being able to see some of that yeah. b-roll footage especially a lot more of the ride of the valkyrie sequence you get to see a lot of the behind the scenes yeah uh with that yeah so what do we uh what do we think of duval in this movie 100 percent deserve that nomination he is terrifying in this film like the more you know, the more I watch it and the more I peel back certain layers, he's that whole surfing suit. That's a nightmare. It's actually, I think it's more frightening than maybe even the bridge sequence later on. It's just his, his attitude and the duality of his character. There's that wonderful moment where they're throwing out the death cards and he comes across a guy who's holding his guts in with the, the, the lid of a pot mm-hmm. and the one guy is trying to stop him from having water. He's like, are you fucking kidding me? Any man who's brave enough to fight holding his guts in, he can drink from my canteen any day. And then you have that immediate switch where as he's giving him the water, somebody tells him, oh, that's Lance over there, Lance the surfer. And he's like, he, the guy is reaching up for the water and he's oblivious to it because he's just heard something, oh, something shiny. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things. And just his, the whole attitude of them during the, the ride of the Valkyrie sequence, I know it's a very rousing, very moving, ba ba da ba ba and yeah. everybody gets, like there's the sequence in Jarhead where they're all watching it and they're all getting all pumped up and fucking hard as rocks, yeah, you know, America, yeah. fuck yeah, that kind of attitude. Yeah, like, yeah, no, yeah. This is not a sequence where you do that. This this is horrifying. Yeah. Well, I mean, because you get some of the stuff, you know, like, what is it? Like he says, I think he, he even says Wagner scares the shit out of him. Yeah. And, you know, one of the guys says, you know, why are you sitting on your helmet? I said, my, ball, my balls don't get blown off. Yeah, there, I mean, and I get that that's that's also a little bit of comic relief, but there's a little bit of seriousness to that too, you know, as the guy quickly fucking sits on his helmet. Yeah. I, I think first and foremostly, I don't know that this film should be called an action film or a, or a war film. I think it is a horror film. Okay. Based on this river that we take up, there's this journey that we take up river and the characters that we meet and some of their indifference to life and death even in the Willard character himself, as we later get to the sandpan mm-hmm. scene, that sandpan scene is, it, if it doesn't rip your heart out of your chest, I don't know what to tell you, man. You got no soul. Not you specifically, but you know, just anybody listening. You know, she's she's trying to protect this little puppy. Mm-hmm. And of course, they end up mowing them all down. Yeah. And they, yeah. he goes, no, this woman's still alive. We got to get her back. And he, Willard shoots her and he's like, I told you not to stop. 
um, that there's a there's a switch in that character that happens then. I, I when I was watching the movie because I would say I think this is the the third time I've seen I've seen the original once and then I saw the Redux and then I watched this again for for the pod and more so than any other time the the I you know I told you not to stop. I I, uh, I I I really the next day maybe more than any other moment in the movie I, that moment specifically I I thought about a lot and. You know how much who, who's I mean who I, it could be a lot of people and maybe it's everybody and maybe it's nobody but you know whose fault that moment really was, and you know he did say to keep you know we're you know if you wouldn't be out here if it wasn't for me and and you know keep going and you know and but no on my on my boat this is what we this is what we do you know we're we haven't gotten to where you're going yet and that's it, it's a, it's a tough moment um yeah I don't I don't know I I mean I agree it, it, and there's there's clearly a switch in Willard in that moment and. It's 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 brutal and and obviously when you realize there was just a puppy on the on the boat you realize how crazy and ridiculous a lot of stuff happening over there was. So you 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 kind of gave me the side eye when I said I think this film should first and foremostly be called a horror film before it is before it's called an action film or a war. I don't think film. it's an action film. I think it's most certainly a war film. Yeah, no, it is. But I th- I think it's it's a it's war horror. I uh, okay. Because what it what it does and it's horror not in a physical sense necessarily but in a psychological one because it forces us to look at these characters and the duality of so many of them. There's another moment that I'll reinforce that argument with as well as the I told you not to stop moment, but and the duality in Willard's character. But the first time he sees Colby, who's there waiting for him when he finally gets to the Kurtz compound, and there's a nervousness between them as they just stare dead into each other's eyes. And it's, I think they are both terrified in that moment because Colby has a moment where he sees his past and Willard is looking into what very well may be his future mm-hmm. yeah. in, in the Colby character. And so that's, that's, it's a psychological horror in that sense is, is dealing with the, the duality in us and, and what is it going to take to push us to that edge? That's what I was thinking about a lot this morning when I was trying to solidify some of my arguments for it being in the book. Um, I am fascinated by films that are about the American dream gone wrong. Okay. Uh, Goodfellas, I would certainly call that one of those. Sure. Uh, JFK would be another one. Um, JFK, more specifically deals with the disenfranchisement of a people. Um, But this is about the American dream overseas and, and how it has gone as wrong as it possibly can for this Kurtz character and how he's supposed to be there as a green beret, as special forces. He talks about the, the, the moment which I think is is the best acting moment of Marlon Brando's entire career is the the inoculated arms story. I mean, and the the guys that came back and they cut off all the arms and my God, the genius of that. It is it is showing the corruption of democracy overseas. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and you know despite. As the general says, what he says, uh, Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. No matter how good your intentions are, that primordial, not necessarily evil, but that that other side of our nature is lurking not as far underneath the surface as I think we would all like to think it is. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Which is, again, another thing that elevates this movie beyond just being a simple war film. 
Well, and I and I I I would definitely not call this movie a, a simple war film. I mean, I, I do think it it is trying to get at more than just this is what Vietnam was like, you know, the but more about the psychological nature of, of people and and you know what they were doing and how they interpreted things. I mean, I mean, just looking at the people on the boat alone, you know, the way they handle everything is it's very different. You know, Lance just basically resorts right to drugs pretty much the the entire time. And, you know, Chief, I, you know, I, I think I, I think I think on a, on a wrong day, man, he hears a, a branch in, in a tree break and, and he, he snaps. You know, I, th- I think he's he's right there on the cusp of fucking losing his goddamn mind. Um, this is this is Chief and not Chef we're talking about. right? Chief. Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah Chef is man. He, he I don't I, he he's a, he's an interesting character. Um, I, I, and I think uh, I think Frederick Forrest's performance in this is one of those uh it's one of those those roles i like to call a thankless job i think it's uh sure he he does a lot with with very little yeah and the scenes where he does get to go big i feel like they're undervalued in the scope of or they get lost in such a big film where there's already so much to admire yeah i I don't know how i I, the whole the the moment where they get out of the boat they go because he wants fucking mangoes man and and uh, he's trying to talk about being a saucier and then the, the tiger comes out and they run back to the boat and he's, he's freaking out. And, and I, I, I buy him freaking out. I mean, he just fucking, a fucking tiger just ran out of the jungle. I, that, that would freak me out too. But I, I just don't understand. I mean, why, why are they going to get mangoes? Why are they, why, are, why, are, why, why is that a scene in the movie? You. Yeah, you. Listen to the podcast. Would you like to hear the answer to that question? Well, here's the thing. Ian and I continued talking about this movie, Apocalypse Now and Hearts of Darkness, for about another hour. So, unfortunately, you're going to have to wait until next week. But we hope you join us in finishing the exciting conclusion of our episode talking about Apocalypse Now and Hearts of Darkness. So, as we always do to end the show, uh, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, all those places you can you can find us and listen to us. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. You can support the show at patreon.com slash 1001 by one and come join us next week for the exciting conclusion to this episode. And until then, I am Adam, he is Ian, and we will see you next week.